The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. If we're leading with the bell, that's usually not good news when it comes to the economy. Welcome to Meet the Press. Now I'm Chuck Todd. It's been a busy day in general. We have a busy 2024 political day. We're going to get to that in a moment. But there's a reason we began with the closing bell, the breaking news in the economic sector. You're looking. That was the closing bell. Markets reacted today to the biggest U.S. banking collapse uh, in more than a decade. Markets just closed. They were down. All the major indices fell by more than 1%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq closed down by more than one and a half percent. Why did NASDAQ take a hit worse? Because the Silicon Valley Bank had to be shut down by regulators despite emergency efforts by the tech bank to stay afloat. This is the nation's 16th largest bank, has more than $200 billion in assets, and it makes it the single largest U.S. bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. And it's the second biggest bank failure ever. Cecilia Rouse, who's chair of the White House's Council of Economic Advisors, told reporters last hour that the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was closely monitoring the situation. The White House was confident that the bank's collapse would not have a ripple effect throughout the banking system or the tech sector. Our, our banking system is fundamentally different because of the, the changes that we put in place in 2008. For example, they have to hold more capital. They undergo stress tests. So we know that we had to build more resilience into our banking system, which allows it to withstand these kinds of shocks. So I do have faith that we have the tools uh, to for, for this sector and for our regulators to be able to absorb. But, you know, this is what we know today. But we do know that our banking system is in a fundamentally different place. It's important, she said, today, because there's a lot of concern about what Monday morning is going to look like. All of this comes on the same day we received some positive economic news, courtesy of the Labor Department. They announced that more than 300,000 jobs were created last month. It beat expectations again. Unemployment rate uh, ticked up a little bit to 3.6 percent because more people came into the job market. Let's get things started with CNBC's senior markets correspondent Bob Pisani. Uh, also with me is the Wall Street Journal Capital Markets reporter Corey Trebush. Um, Bob, let me start with you. Uh, this this Silicon Valley Bank, it, it, I saw the headline is Peter Thiel sort of started this, and he's obviously a pretty big tech uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, I guess, if you will, capitalist or, or tech investor, if you will. What, what made him do this? Because it seemed to trigger a run on this bank. Well, it, it, there's larger concerns here. So Silicon Valley Bank is a very peculiar kind of animal. It's not a typical regional bank that we see. This was very involved in the innovation economy. These uh, startups were uh, very involved, and the bank was very involved with the startups, providing lending and support. So a lot of these startup companies in Silicon Valley had deposits there. And for example, they were using those deposits to make payroll. In the last oh, six, eight, nine months, we have seen real difficulties as interest rates rise. These startups don't make any money, right. so they have to constantly be borrowing money. It's been tough to do that. So instead of doing that, they've been selling down or, or going into their deposits and essentially using that to fund their operations. Well, the banks so noticed this and saw dramatic drop in their deposits. This didn't happen everywhere else except here. And they had to sell some assets to deal with those deposits uh, going out. So what they found was they had to sell bonds that had dropped in price. And that's what got everybody attention. So I don't I don't think it's it's not necessarily Teal that's dealing with this. There's a larger problem here with the fact that Silicon Valley has had problems not being able to fund their operations because they can't borrow as easily and they're drawing down the available cash. So again, and this is a pretty particular situation right now. So it sounds like what you're saying is that this that that now that the uh, free money train is over, thanks to the Fed and the interest rate right. hikes, I mean, is 
Are we going to find out that there are a lot more of these uh, Silicon Valley startups that maybe aren't what we thought they were and they're about to be caught with their pants down here next week? Well, that's a, a contagion question. And the, the answer is I don't know, but I tend to uh, tend to doubt that. I'll tell you what the real issue is. The real issue is is related to this issue, and that is that the costs of deposits are going up. My mother called me two weeks ago and said, Robert, I'm taking money out of my bank account and I'm buying bank CDs and two-year treasuries at 5%. Why shouldn't I do that? Well, people around the country are doing what my mother's doing. They're taking their bank deposits and they're buying CDs and, and short-term government treasuries. That means deposits are going down in a lot of these banks. Mm -hmm. The banks are going to have to pay their depositors more money. What that means is there's going to be a hit to earnings. That's It's going to be a cost, and that's good for the depositors. My mother's going to be very, very happy, but it's a hit to the bank earnings. That's a separate question. It's related to that Silicon Valley bank question, but it's a, it's a related question. And that's one of the reasons the banks have had a lot of problems this week independent of this. All right, let me bring in Corey Drebush here. So, Corey, uh, the near term, Monday morning, what are you looking forward to, to see? Is this contagious or not? Well, I think on Monday, so what the FDIC has said, um, that depositors will have access to their funds um, by Monday. So, I think we have to see what happens. I know that a lot of my conversations right now is with uh, startup fund founders who had money at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And some saw the writing on the wall yesterday and were pulling their money out and transferring it to other accounts. But that means you had to have an account open, typically at another bank, to be able to move your money and do a wire transfer. Uh, others have millions of dollars still tied up and that's above the insured amount. So I think everyone is in a little bit of a panic mode right now that I've been talking to, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And when people are panicking, right. they sometimes do maybe not rational things. Well, I was just going to say, what what is what is something the FDIC could do to almost prevent the irrationality? Oh, maybe Bob can answer that better than I can. I, I'm not sure. I think what everyone was hoping for last night into the very late hours was that the share sale that um, SVB was attempting to do, was that if that was going to go through. Because really, when you think about it, they had a couple billion dollar hole they needed to fill. And if they had been able to do this capital raise um, by selling additional stock and they'd been able to raise that money, that would have calmed a lot of investors and would have calmed depositors to know that things were okay and that could have continued. When it came this morning and news broke that the bank was unable to complete that stock sale, that capital yeah. raise, that was a real tipping point. Bob, what does it say? You know, I remember during the 2008 financial collapse, uh, I think it was JP Morgan said, yeah, we'll take Merrill Lynch. Um, why would, wouldn't yeah. some of the bigger banks want Why wouldn't they want to take on SVB? I mean, that to me is a bit of a yellow flag, is it not? Well, um, the answer is uh, be careful, because what happened in 2008 and 2009, it was Bank of America, as I call it, Merrill Lynch. But the important thing is the, all of a sudden, these banks took on some very big liabilities, potentially. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things, when you lift the rock up, a lot of things you discovered here. Now, in theory, Silicon Valley Bank has more assets than it does liabilities. I saw $200 billion in assets and $175 billion in deposits. Deposits are liabilities. So in theory, you're right. We should be able to find a seller for this, hopefully, uh, excuse me, a buyer for this, mm. hopefully over the weekend. And that would alleviate a lot of concerns here. However, it may take longer than that in this kind of uh, environment. In theory, the, there's plenty of assets here and people can be made whole. If that doesn't happen, you've got a problem. The FDIC only insures up to 250000 Now you've got a government decision. Is the bank too big to fail? Right. Well, let me ask you yeah. that. Is it too big to fail? The other, I was just going to note that about the assets. Yes, it had 170 billion assets, 75 billion assets, but there's been a lot of taking out. A lot of people have been taking out their money. So I, I, that's what I've been hearing also in conversations about. Do you want to take on um, Silicon Valley Bank's assets right now? There's not. 
if everyone's leaving, what are you buying? That makes sense. It does. I see what you're saying there. If everybody's already fleeing. All right. Bob Pisani, Corey Drubas, thank you for trying to help us understand this, get us started. Uh, and we will all cross our fingers through the weekend. Let's turn now to what is a little bit more in our wheelhouse, 2024 politics, where we are witnessing quite the split screen for the top contenders for the GOP nomination. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is facing voters in Iowa for the first time. And former President Donald Trump is potentially facing an indictment. Let's start on the ground in Iowa. DeSantis made stops in Davenport and Des Moines today. He's actually on about to do his Des Moines stop. He's pitching, of course, his new book. And the Washington Post happened to report today that he is privately indicating that he has indeed made his decision to run for president. He just simply hasn't announced yet. His remarks sure sounded a whole lot more like someone readying a presidential bid, touting his victories in Florida with a heavy dose of culture war talking points. In fact, take a listen to how many times he says a certain word. Woke ideology has infected so many institutions. Uh, if you really want to protect the freedom of your folks, you got to be willing to defend them against the left imposing their pathologies on, on your people in any of these institutions. So we've got to fight if we see it in medicine or the universities or the corporations. You can't just say, let it go, because then we're going to be living under an oppressive wokeocracy, and we can't that happen. So we say very clearly in the state of Florida, we will fight the woke in the legislature. We will fight the woke in education. We will fight the woke in the businesses. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. Students of history will note he was sort of trying to channel Winston Churchill, I guess, there. Iowa's gold standard uh, poll, the Des Moines Register poll, has some pretty good numbers for DeSantis among Republicans. But those sparkling numbers are liable to change as he gets more tax and has to embark on Iowa's retail brand of politicking, which may not be in his wheelhouse. Mr. Trump will also be in Iowa Monday, and he'll make that trip as he's received word from the Manhattan DA that he's welcome to testify before a grand jury. Next week, as part of his investigation into Stormy Daniels, the stage name for Stephanie Clifford and that hush money case, it's a legal matter that occurred, believe it or not, two presidential campaigns ago for Donald Trump. The development, though, could signal a looming indictment, according to the New York Times, which first broke the story. We're going to dig into the legal ramifications later this hour, but the politics of a potential indictment certainly raises some interesting questions. Among them, what would the reaction on the right be if Trump had the title of indicted former president campaigning in Iowa today? Would the indictment be fair game for Governor DeSantis or other 2024 hopefuls? Or would they not want to actually risk alienating Trump's most vocal supporters? What would the conservative echo chamber do? What about donors? To be sure, former President Trump is no stranger to legal controversy, and he's had a long history of weathering headlines that would sink any other politician. And at the moment, his standing in Iowa is pretty strong, according to this Des Moines Register poll. Digging into the numbers, he's seen only a minor drop-off in support since September 2021. And in that time, he's been the focus of damning January 6th committee hearings. He's been rebuked for meeting with a white supremacist. He even suggested terminating the Constitution as he lashed out over the 2020 results. That all, just to name a few, and his numbers have barely budged. Donald Trump has made a career out of wriggling himself out of political and legal jams. Could he end up doing it again? Let's check in on the DeSantis debut in Iowa. First time apparently he's ever been to the state. Dasha Burns is crisscrossing the state following Mr. DeSantis. You can hear the turn signal now. Uh, so, <laughs> Dasha... Uh, the big question I have, we heard what he had to say. Um, was he uh, comfortable or not actually glad-handing? That's a really great question, Chuck. And I got to tell you, right now, driving across the state of Iowa, chasing big names around, it sure feels like the start of Iowa caucus season, even though we are many months away. You know, we just had Nikki Haley in the state this week. And of course, former President Trump uh, coming to make his first stop since he declared his candidacy um, here in Iowa. My uh, colleague, producer Kailani Koenig, driving safely, getting us into Des Moines. We just uh, arrived in the city for his second event. Look, the crowd in Davenport, his first event, was big, 700-plus people in a casino ballroom there. A pretty big crowd for a Friday morning in Davenport, mm -hmm. Iowa, and he was received with a whole lot of enthusiasm, Chuck. A lot of applause and cheering throughout his uh, speech. Uh, 
few, more than a few standing ovations. And I did watch as after he wrapped up the event, he signed some books for voters there. He did some of the handshakes. We haven't yet seen him go on one of those real retail mm -hmm. Iowa stops. We haven't seen him in a diner. Or we haven't seen him in the coffee shops. And you well know how important retail politics is here in Iowa. These voters, they may be excited for this or Trump or any number of these candidates, but they're going to go to everyone's events. They're going to suss everybody right. out. They want the handshakes. They want the direct answers. And so this state is a really big test for DeSantis to see whether he can really appeal to voters right. outside of the state of Florida, outside of that, you know, podium that he's been behind as, as governor, right. uh, now sort of more among uh, the people. The folks I talked to today, they, they were excited um, by what they heard from DeSantis, especially uh, the time that he spent talking talking about uh, his COVID policies in Florida and deriving the right. federal response, which, by the way, Chuck, is an attack line on both the current president, Biden, and former President Trump, potentially a preview of what we'll see if he does throw his hat into the ring formally, Chuck. All right, Dasha Burns, glad you're wearing your seatbelt. You have done everything, <laughs> all the checklist uh, when it comes to reporting from a car. Dasha Burns in Des Moines for us. Dasha, thank you. Joining me now on set, Josh Kroshauer. He's the senior political correspondent for Axios, former Maryland Democratic Congresswoman and NBC News political analyst. Donna Edwards is here. And the former chairman of the RNC, Michael Steele. He's also an NBC News political analyst. You know, Josh, let's talk about DeSantis here. You know, Iowans will punish podium candidates. And Donald Trump is one who got punished. Donald Trump, first time he tried to campaign in Iowa with an airplane hanger. And the guy who did more retail politics, Ted Cruz, ended up winning it. Uh, if we have two podium candidates, it almost leaves an opening in Iowa if he's not careful. Well, look, uh, first of all, I think this is a big test for Ron DeSantis because the rap on DeSantis is that he doesn't have the personal style, that he doesn't like to go to the, to the town halls and do the grip and grins. And, and this is, you know, this, he's doing the book tour, but he looked pretty comfortable out there, Chuck. And I think yeah. this is like spring training. He's getting some yeah. batting practice to see how he can do with the retail politics. I also, I also thought his speech was really interesting and it tells you a lot of where the Republican Party is right now. Right. The what we could have a drinking game with with woke. My goodness. Yeah. Woke. 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 Yeah. But that is the one issue that that's the only issue really that unites the Republican yeah. Party these days: foreign policy, entitlements, spending. You know, almost all the issues that define the Reagan right. coalition are now dividing the party. And DeSantis is the one guy who feels like he's united it by talking about those those woke issues. Uh, Michael, I, it's interesting that DeSantis people are a little are aware that they're going to be judged about whether they're any good at campaigning. And so check out the blind quote that they gave to CNN, uh, according to a source. Blind quote, so, you know, because the Santos people don't deal with mainstream media. Right. Rod DeSantis has never been successful because he's the best campaigner, this source said. He's been successful because he's been the best governor. Primary voters are less concerned if you're having coffee with them than if you are authentic and doing what you say you're going to do. I get it that Iowa and New Hampshire voters are used to a, a certain campaign style, and he'll have to can consider those factors. But Republican primary voters are so concerned with the direction of the country, and those things will be less important. No, they're not. That's such <laughs> a crock. No. But isn't it, it admitting no. that it's they admitting know that he is the a guy, The guy is not, he's not a glad-hander. He never has been. He doesn't like it. Do you talk to uh, governors around the country who've been at events with him, whether they're the, on the National Governor Association or the Republican Governor Association, he's an aloof guy. He just mm -hmm. is. That's his style. It works in Florida. It ain't going to work in Iowa. It's not going to work in New Hampshire. They've got to figure out how to get him comfortable with that, because the one thing I can tell you, and all of us here at this table know this, mm -hmm. Voters have a very keen sixth sense yeah. about a person when they walk up to meet them. Right. And you look them in the eye and you shake their hand. And then that moment tells you everything you want to know about that person. And if, if you're interested in them or not or in all yeah. of that. And that has to come from him. And I don't know if it is. I don't know if it will. How does he translate outside of Florida? They think Florida mm. is a blueprint for the country. I'm telling you, it ain't. Mm. But, you know. We're going to find out, you know, we'll Donna, find the other out. thing that I think is interesting is I've been comparing DeSantis to George W. Bush, right? It's not since George W. Bush that we had sort of a sitting governor almost waiting in the wings. George W. Bush started his Iowa campaign with a general election message and played some primary politics. I don't know what the DeSantis general election message is. He's clearly not doing it. That was a primary speech. 
No, it was. And I, I think that DeSantis f feels that in order to get this nomination, that he has to go hard at the Trump base mm -hmm. and that that will get him over the top. It doesn't do anything for him in a general election. I think quite the opposite. And when I listen to DeSantis, you know, he's used to running campaigns that are in a media driven state. And Iowa and New Hampshire, I've been in Iowa. We've all been in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, grip and grin. Uh, go into the living rooms and the coffee shops and the diners and uh, talk to people. And they view themselves, those voters view themselves as really highly uh, sophisticated voters who ask really tough questions. You're not going to get over that by just, you know, pout, stouting, pouting a, a, a campaign theme and saying, you know, a wokeocracy yeah. in a campaign. Here's what I do know, Josh. I don't know who's going to be the Pizza Ranch candidate, or the you know, or the uh, or the or the Pete Buttigieg, but we know this person gets rewarded by Iowans. Somebody is going to be the person that plays that does the old school way, and they'll be the chief challenger to either DeSantis or Trump. And there's space if DeSantis gets in, yeah. and Trump goes after DeSantis. DeSantis goes after Trump. Yeah. There is going to be a lane for a third I candidate. I think there is too. Nikki Haley spent a lot, lot of time. And in she's Iowa. playing a pizza ranch game. She's I, going I, to the retail I, stops. I, I, you know, I think there is a room for a more optimistic conservative message as well. The, the question is who's going to fill? Right. I, literally a, a conservative Pete Buttigieg, because that's what he sort of created for himself that it almost yeah. worked. I disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I think Trump's got it. The man's sitting at 80%. You, who peels off? What, where does that 80% peel off? How does it peel off? They're, they're it, bought, you, they're are you saying with the, him. so indicted former yes. president Donald Trump doesn't lock and lose. load. You don't think lock it loses and him. load. Yeah. He is he is setting being set up to become a, a national martyr for the MAGA base. And at 80 percent in Iowa, he's not going to drop to 50. And, and but he and, could drop to 50 and still win. Yeah, but the, thank you. But the, That's my point. He could drop to 50 and still win. And so the reality of the reality for anyone getting in this race is how do I get that 80 percent on my side of the tracks? And I don't see the lane. I don't see how you get there. If Trump is going to engage, he's going to ignore these indictments. Trump wants the indictment. Yes. Because that's the, that uh, he does. He wants that well, because wants that's the, the way. I think. He, but he, I take your point. Yeah. I see where you're going. Right. Yeah. 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 Now finish. He no, he do, I mean, he does. Right. And I mean, he wants he wants that because he knows that that is what generates the excitement and enthusiasm in his base. And he's going to retain that. Who peels off the rest to get to 50 percent? Josh, what if folks told you on the other campaigns about how they handle the legal problems of Trump? I agree with what Donna's saying, that the legal problems are beneficial in the primary to Donald Trump because it feeds on the voters' sense of, yeah. of grievance. Now, and I also think that the, the news that the one indictment that may be closest to, to coming down the pike is about Stormy Daniels. Yeah. If that, Again, it's two campaigns ago, two, as I point out, two presidential campaigns ago. And over hush. I mean, that, that is, that would be music, I think, to the Trump campaign. Look, I don't think he wants to deal with the legal issues. I, I, I do. Don't think that that's an issue they want to face. But politically, if the the uh, the New York uh, prosecutor yeah. indicts Trump on the Stormy Daniels hush money, that would be feeding the sense of grievance. I think a whole lot. They more. didn't care about the Access Hollywood tapes. Why are they going to care about Stormy Daniels in a primary? Yeah, I said they didn't care about Access Hollywood in a general. Why are they going to care about Stormy Daniels Daniels in a primary? It, it has been not. that is con, 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 you know that's always the. Yeah, what about that? Right? And That's which of these, which of his opponents are going to go directly at him? We haven't heard right. that yet. Mm -hmm. We haven't heard a single attack coming from any of these prospective candidates against Trump. How do you knock a guy down if you're not willing to go at him? You mentioned his I, I name. And I only hear it in calls and emails to me. Right. I don't know about <laughs> you, because they all make this case. And you know, and in fact, the one I hear, the, the, the one that they get the most animated about is, you know, he only can hit one term. Yeah. Well, I don't know if voters care about that. Well, and, and the campaign's thought a couple months ago that Trump was going to fade on his own after that Mar-a-Lago dinner yeah. with Nick Fuentes and Kanye. And that didn't happen. I, I don't think they've adjusted their strategies to the reality that Trump has actually gained momentum. As, as you noted, Michael, he's gained uh, support in the, in the latest round of polls because no one wants to go after him. No one wants to hit him directly. And eventually, we're, we're, I'm getting 2016 deja vu all over again. <laughs> right. By the way, we see it in the Fox depositions. Thank you. Like, they don't, they're afraid of him. They all hate him. They all want him to go away. They don't do it. They all say, geez, I hope the New York Times takes him down. 
Right. 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 NBC News takes him down. You're like, guys, what do you, you know? The reality, again, to, to both of your points is if you're not prepared to really go in the ring, go into the center of the ring and box him into a corner and then take him out. Why are you doing that? Let me throw one more puck out here. The conservative ecosystem. Barack Obama, I would argue, in 2008, had enough of the media ecosystem that basically punished Hillary Clinton for going too negative, right? If there was ever a point he went too far. Will that, will Ron DeSantis have a cocoon of protection around him? And, and who, who is that cocoon? Will have it enough that it will punish Trump for going at him too hard? I, I think the challenge is that it's the incentives in the conservative media ecosystem is to go further and further <laughs> to the right. And I, well, Ron DeSantis has to make a decision. Does he sort of look at the donor class? Does he see that there's an open space in that center right? Worked well for Jeb Bush. And, and look, he has the credibility with the base. He already has that. As governor of Florida, he has that with all the fights he's won. Uh, but he seems to feel that he needs to go even for more cowbell. He needs to, he yeah. needs more cowbell to take on Trump. And that is a, a problem, if not in the primary, certainly in the general election. Which goes back to the original point that you, when your message is a hard primary message, where do you go in a general election? Which is why I said yeah. Florida is not the country. It's not going to translate all this woke stuff in Florida and all this anti-CRT. Wait till you get in front of a, a room full of black folks and have that conversation about yeah. black history and the black relationship to the country. What's your answer going to be? Donna, what's interesting is six months ago, I did have Biden people nervous about DeSantis. I don't hear that nervousness anymore because they feel as if DeSantis is trying so hard to basically emulate Trump. They feel like they can run the same campaign. And I think that I think they're right about that assessment. I mean, you even look at what you hear from Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo. Haley or, worries them. Uh, any of the, Haley makes them nervous. does. But here's the problem that Nikki Haley will not do. She she can't even identify where she differs with Trump. DeSantis is not willing to do that. And as long as that is the case, I think that the Biden folks should feel really good about running this campaign. It is fascinating. What a fun conversation. Appreciate it. <laughs> Hated having to start with like actual doom and gloom news. Right. Let's hope this is not uh, an economic catastrophe. Josh, uh, Don, and Michael, thank you all. Coming up, we're going to do a deeper dive into the Manhattan DA's case against the former president as investigators signal possible criminal charges are coming. Plus, California is bracing for even more destructive weather, more dangerous floods, snow, and even avalanches in the forecast. We'll have the latest. You're watching Meet the Press now. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. As we mentioned, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney has invited former President Trump to testify before a grand jury about his role in the hush money payments made to former adult film star Stephanie Clifford, who goes by the stage name Stormy Daniels. According to the New York Times, which first broke the story, the move signals that criminal charges are likely against the former president. Two attorneys for Trump confirmed the grand jury invitation to NBC News and said they weren't told that criminal charges could be forthcoming. The former president has denied any wrongdoing. The Manhattan DA's office has declined to comment on the matter, and a Trump spokesperson has released a statement in which he calls the investigation a witch hunt and describes any intent to indict him as simply insane. Joining me now is Vaughn Hilliard. He's covering all of this, covers Trump as the candidate, but also these various investigations he's facing. And also of NBC News legal analyst Danny Savalos, who's a criminal defense attorney. But let me talk about the politics of this, Vaughn. Um, I know there's always bravado in Trump world. Ah, bring it on. You know, we can beat anything. 
any nervousness at this that, you know, you know, that these indictments could become a problem for them in the primary? He has no choice but to turn all this on its head at this point. At CPAC over the weekend, he brought it up on stage, not only this lawsuit and talking mm-hmm. about the hush money payments, but also the Fulton County investigation, Letitia James's civil suit mm-hmm. against him and his family business. And much like we saw after that first impeachment proceeding, he stood there inside of the White House after the Senate did not vote to not convict mm-hmm. him. He held up the newspaper and essentially made claim that he was vindicated. Mm-hmm. He was exonerated. And so we're talking about, though, not just this one case, but we're talking about the Fulton County investigation, mm-hmm. the Eugene Carroll lawsuits. We're talking about the investigation of the Mar-a-Lago documents, the 2020 effort to overturn the election. And suddenly you can see over the course of months that it's not just one indictment. Right. You're talking about a lot of legal challenges. And if you're the Trump world, if you could choose which one came first, they might actually choose this one. This one. Because, because Donald- it feels like it's the, this, the, the easiest one to swipe away. Right. And for Donald Trump, he's saying, look, they can't get me on anything else. So they got to go all the way back to 2016, which you all heard about in 2017 for the first time. And it does seem as if this one, and I'm going to get to the defense part of this, but they're kind of prosecuting Trump for something the feds arguably should be prosecuting him for, but declined to do. Right. And Michael Cohen has already pleaded guilty in 2018. And that's where to a federal crime to a federal crime here. And that is now we're talking about New York state law. Mm-hmm. And that is where in the public conscious, everybody went through the Michael Cohen experience literally five years ago. Right. And now why is Michael Cohen for a 20th meeting today meeting with right. the district attorney prosecutors? You know, what could he possibly re- be revealing here at this point? And with him as the key witness, you're talking about a guy who is held up as a perpetual liar in the American public. Came, came to know right. is somebody who is Donald Trump's fixer and lawyer. And now he is being held up as the person who is going to potentially be the one to actually take him down in right. the legal court system for the first time. I want to talk about a few other, the, the, the Georgia case. Um, have you heard any whispers? Because I've always thought Donald Trump might have one get out of jail free card in Georgia if state charges are brought against him. And that is a pardon from the governor. Have you heard any whispers about this in Georgia? I have not. Mm-hmm. And I think Brian Kemp is somebody who I talked to back in November yes, yeah, right, when I was yeah. down in the state. This is somebody who has, uh, I, I think, found that he was rewarded for doing the right thing and going uh, mm-hmm. by the, 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 this, the... This is a the fascinating decision, though. It is a fascinating decision, and I think that that is one that Brian Kemp would rather not have to take on himself. And the reality is also he's not just dealing with Donald Trump. He's also dealing with even the head of the Republican Party down there, David Schaefer, who is also a target of the investigation. We're talking about 18 people. So whether it's Donald Trump, there's also probably a lot of other allies who were uh, part of the fake elector scheme. Uh, There's a lot that could be handed down to Brian Kemp. Another political challenge that he would rather not have to deal with because of Donald Trump. I was just going to say, I think there's a certain member of Congress— who might be very vocal at the governor to try to get them to do this. I just, I think he's, it's a fascinating story. I think we should, we, we should be uh, watching. We're still a ways away from it. Vaughn, uh, stick around here a second. Let me bring in Danny Savalos. Danny, let's talk about the Manhattan specifics here a bit. I, I've, the, the hardest thing to sort of understand is the feds declined to pursue this case. Does that make this case seem weaker? By, Manhattan, by the Manhattan DA doing it. Yes, it does. This isn't always the case. The federal government is a government of limited jurisdiction. There's often overlapping jurisdiction between federal crimes and state crimes. So it's not uncommon for the feds to defer to state prosecution if they think the state has a greater state interest than the federal government does. So, for example, if the interstate commerce of federal nexus is lesser than the state interest in, say, prosecuting a bank robber or a robber of some kind, even if there's a jurisdictional hook for the federal government, they'll often decline. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a weaker case. However, in this situation, because the feds did prosecute someone else who was tangentially involved, that being Michael Cohen, uh, they clearly had all the facts. They had conducted part of or if not all the investigation and declined to prosecute the president, even though he's clearly named in Michael Cohen's plea allocution. I say clearly, but he's named as a pseudonym. Number one, I, I think yeah. either as co-conspirator or person number one person or whatever one, the case I think may be. It was, something like so, that, yeah. So the bottom line is, yes, I think we can read into the fact that the federal government chose not to prosecute this case because they figured if they were going to take on the toughest defendant in the history of defendants, it wasn't going to be with this case. Would you uh, advise Donald Trump to go before the grand jury or not in this case? 
No, definitely not, especially under New York law. I mean, you would have to waive his immunity and you don't want to do that. So you're going to decline if you have any potential liability before a grand jury. And that's pretty much across all grand jury practice. But in terms of is this a prosecution that Trump is afraid of? I frankly agree with your uh, panel uh, that you just had on in that if Trump is going to be prosecuted, this is the one that he wants to happen because it is going to be very difficult to prove this case. First of all, any, falsifying. Yeah, go ahead. Was there any jail time connected? Let's say he's let's say they successfully prosecute him. Then what? It depends. It depends if they successfully prosecute him for falsifying business records as a misdemeanor, as a first time offender. He's totally got a shot at a probation only sentence. Now, if you're talking about a felony and that's only bumped up to a felony if he falsified records to commit a crime. But theoretically, the crime here would be an election law violation. And by the way, I, if everyone's being honest and you go back six, seven years, how many of us were really aware that any imaginable benefit to a campaign is a potential benefit to the campaign that needs to be reported and going unreported is a violation, a criminal violation yeah. of election law. I don't think there were that many people. This is a novel theory to bump this case up to felony level. I think it's a long shot. Anytime you're dealing with a novel theory uh, of liability in a prosecution, you've got a shot. You've got a shot to throw that case out if you've got some sharp defense attorneys uh, who are willing to make the argument. You think this is a... a, a Set aside what we know about the feds in isolation. Is this a good case or does it look like or is this a case that if it was anybody else, the Manhattan D.A. would not pursue? No. When I opened the paper and saw the headline prosecutors signaling prosecution of Trump was near, I went through about three or four other criminal investigations of Trump before I read the article. And when I learned it was Alvin Bragg in the Manhattan DA's office and it was going back to Stormy Daniels, a name people barely remember now. Uh, I thought this is a weak case and I can tick through the minor points. Number one, the case is six, seven years old. What else? What have you been investigating all this time? Uh, number two, the investigation of Trump by the Manhattan DA's office has stutter step. Look at that, that uh, B-roll there. The person behind her has it's since so been prosecuted he and is. imprisoned He's in, actually in, in, on two different cases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at that time, don't forget, Chuck, you may remember, he was the toast of the town. He was the he was contemplating a run for president himself. Yeah. That's how much time has passed. So you have a misdemeanor case. Right that the DA has to bump up to a felony by using a theory that is virtually untested, completely untested. And you have the toughest defendant yeah. in the history of defendants. And then you also have the right. fact that falsifying business <laughs> records, how do you know he was the one who falsified them? Ultimately, you pin that to this, uh, this, sh yep. this sort of cloudy campaign finance law. Yep. It's a long shot. Uh, Danny, they're still, they're still, Donald Trump's still denying that he had an affair with Stormy Daniels, right, Vaughn? He is still denying this. Still actually this denies that the actual affair took place. Anyway, all right. Vaughn Hillier, Danny Savalos, thank you for covering the politics and legal side of this terrific stuff. Up next, California has to declare a state of emergency ahead of yet another series of these severe storms. This is, yes, one of those atmospheric rivers again. At least 10 of these of actual rivers in California are expected to flood now in the coming days. We're on the ground with the latest. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. California is expected to face more extreme weather and some catastrophic flooding this weekend as yet another winter storm system called an atmospheric river rolls across this state. The National Weather Service Prediction Center issued a risk of excessive rainfall and flooding across the state, including in areas that don't normally experience flash flooding. And it gave residents a stark warning that, quote, lives and property are in great danger from Friday into Saturday morning. Not could be. Are. This storm system comes as Governor Gavin Newsom had to declare a state of emergency in 13 counties last week, expanding that to 21 counties by Wednesday. And as the state is still recovering from this similar series of these atmospheric river storms and flooding at the beginning of this year, Jake Ward has been on the ground. He's in Soquel, California. And Jake, just, you know, about the only tragedy here is we're not going to be able to keep all of this water that's coming that I think we'll all wish we had about three or four years from now. 
That is right. Uh, I mean, at this point, uh, we're talking, Chuck, there about a very high quality problem, as my mom would say. Uh, this is now the, you know, here are the low quality problems that people have to deal with first. And that is, of course, damage and destruction. SoCal, California, where, where I am, is a small town near Santa Cruz. And this is, believe it or not, the main street of town. See the people gathered on the far side there? Those people live on the far side. They live uphill. And this is the only road they have available to them to get in and out. That means that because this was washed out overnight, those folks have no way to receive, you know, not, you know, not just groceries, but emergency services, right? I mean, if an ambulance or a fire truck needed to get up there, there'd be no way to do it. And that is why we've been watching this crew all day trying to essentially push whatever debris it can into the river to try to build some sort of base for a temporary roadway. I mean, you know, Chuck, what's so crazy about being in this environment? I mean, as you know, you and I talk typically about technology, AI, that sort of thing, which I cover most of the time. <laughs> Suddenly, it takes one big rain to create 14th century problems. I mean, to see us transported back to this primitive time simply by the force of Mother Nature is pretty incredible. Now, what is happening here on the ground? Well, you have not just these problems that we're seeing here at sea level, but across the 21 counties that have a state of emergency and now a federal declaration as well, you have not just this rain and flood right. problem, you have the snow problems. At 7,000 feet, at 8,000 feet, this tropical rain that we're feeling, much warmer today than it was yesterday, is going to not only make that snow incredibly heavy, which crushes structures, we're hearing reports up and down the state of, of structures collapsing under the weight, but also all of that is suddenly going to turn into floodwaters. You have, even at Tahoe, trucks unable to go across a roadway because of just how deep the water is. And so, really, it is it is amazing to watch this place transformed overnight right. by this storm. And as you mentioned, it's not over yet. And into Friday, into Saturday, it's going to keep going. And Jake, I read there may have to be intentional controlled flooding, right, for some of these rivers. I mean, that is the thing. There is really no other option. There is so much water here in this state that typically is drought afflicted. Oh it's been goodness, drought afflicted yeah. for the past five years. There's just nothing else to be done with it. And if only we could get to the point where we were thinking yeah. just about preserving that water, I think everybody would be pretty happy with that, Chuck. Well, Jake Ward, a terrific reminder. Sort of, we worry about these tech problems. And sometimes it's like you said, Sometimes we're stuck in the 14th century. Jacob Ward on the ground force in California. Jake, thank you. Still to come, China just brokered a major peace deal, restoring ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The White House's reaction and what that realignment means for the United States. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Pretty major development in the Middle East today is Iran and Saudi Arabia, longtime regional enemies, reached a, an agreement today to reestablish diplomatic relations. It was a significant breakthrough. And ready for this? It was brokered by China. The deal, which includes the reopening of embassies in each other's capital, was finalized in Beijing on the same day that China's parliament rubber-stamped President Xi's historic third term. China's role in hosting and facilitating these talks marks a major diplomatic victory for Beijing as it looks to expand its influence around the world and become sort of a rival, if you will, with the United States. Remember, just two weeks ago, China looked to position itself as the neutral mediator when they unveiled a proposal to end the war in Ukraine. Today's agreement comes amid reports that Saudi Arabia was asking for the United States uh, for some security guarantees and help with its civilian nuclear program as Washington has been trying to broker its own deal to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. It all comes as Gulf states seem increasingly worried that the United States is prioritizing the war in Ukraine and issues in Asia Pacific. With this deal, China appears to be sending a message, perhaps to the U.S. and the world, that it can become a major player in the Middle East. We're going to have more on the Saudi-Iran deal. Uh, and China's role in it with my next guest. It's the White House's National Security Coordinator, John Kirby. Our one-on-one -on -one after the break. Don't go anywhere. As I said, joining me now is the White House, National Security Council for Strategic Communications. The coordinator there is John Kirby. And since we had a lot to talk about, a lot happened around the world, uh, I want to begin with um, the initial reaction here from the administration on China brokering uh, this deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, good news, concerning news, or both? 
Anything that can bring tensions down in the region is welcome, Chuck. And if this can help us end that war in Yemen, if it can help the Saudi people feel uh, more comfortable that they're not going to be attacked from Houthi rebels that are supported by Iran, uh, then then we welcome that. Uh, we think that's uh, it's good for the region. I think it's important for people to remember that one of the reasons that Iran was willing to sit down at the table was, in fact, the pressure they were feeling internally from their own people and mm-hmm. externally from the rest of the world by the way they're supporting Russia and Ukraine. So how does this play and how aware were we that China was doing this at the same time Saudi's trying to negotiate with us, uh, essentially a quid pro quo to agree to the Abraham Accords with Israel? Well, let's separate the two because they really are two different things. I mean, we certainly were mindful of these talks between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran. Saudi was keeping us fully informed of their okay. diplomatic conversations as we keep them informed. So no surprises there. Um, and again, that's a this arrangement, which basically takes these two countries, Chuck, back to where they were seven years ago. The opening of mm-hmm. embassies and diplomatic relations uh, it really goes back to about 2016. And I think it's also important to remember that it remains to be seen how sustainable this is going to be. We've seen Iran enter into agreements before, make commitments that uh, that they actually don't follow through on. We actually hope they do. We hope this does work to de-escalate tensions. I, I'm just curious, though, does it is it at all concerning that um, China's the one playing um, global world leader here and not us in the Middle East? I mean, it's a bit jarring. Uh, look, no sour grapes here. Again, if this thing uh, can has the has the effect that uh, that we want it to have, uh, that's a good thing. And the president is very comfortable with our leadership in the Middle East region, the partnerships that we mm-hmm. have there, the relationships, and all the efforts that we are doing to hold Iran accountable, to keep a viable, credible military military force in that region, and to protect our national security interests. Uh, we're we're very comfortable with with uh, with with the status of our leadership in that part of the world. How would you describe relations between the United States? in Saudi Arabia. And the reason I say that is during the campaign, President Biden said, candidate Biden said he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And now when you see Saudi Arabia's, you know, lack of help on the war uh, in Ukraine, playing footsie with China, doing this, it does seem as if Saudi Arabia has decided to hedge its bets against the United States. Is that a fair assessment? I don't think so. Look, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia is a strategic partner, has been for eight decades, uh, will be going forward. Uh, We certainly had our ups and downs in this relationship. Uh, We're focused on the future here. And I would note, you know, the Saudis went to Kiev and offered, you know, $400 million in energy assistance and security to to Ukraine. That was a positive step. Uh, We're looking for more positive steps. We want to move this relationship forward. Do you think you're going to close this deal between Israel Uh, and Saudi Arabia? And do you think this deal with Iran makes it harder or easier for the Israelis to, to, to do that? We certainly want to see Israel more integrated into the Middle East. We support the Abraham Accords, Chuck, and we want to see that integration continue. Um, one of the reasons why the president went to the Middle East last summer was to help move that process along. You saw just recently Oman opened up their airspace uh, to flights to and from Israel. That's an outgrowth of that trip that the president made. Uh, of course, we got the Red Sea Islands deal done. So we've made a lot of progress on that. We want to see that integration uh, deepen and broaden. Yeah. Now, whether or not this Iran-Saudi Arabia deal, how that affects that, I think, remains to be seen. Uh, But it doesn't change our focus on trying to see Israel more integrated into the region. Uh, Let me move to the concerning developments that happened in northern Mexico this week. Americans killed, kidnapped and killed. Um, And the sort of the jarring aspect that the official government response was one thing, but the cartel sort of almost... Said, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. We speak for northern Mexico. Who governs northern Mexico? Because it doesn't look like it's the Mexican government. Well, we obviously only observe one governing body in Mexico, and that is uh, uh, President Lopez Obrador and his administration. Uh, Mexico is still a democracy, a democracy we respect, and we understand that they've got that they've got those sovereign rights and responsibilities. Um, now they obviously have uh, there's an issue here with with cartels and we just had a senior delegation uh, down in mexico city they just got back today uh, talking to uh, the government there in mexico city about what we can do together to really get at this drug trafficking as well as trafficking in people uh, th- there's an issue here and i think we all recognize that uh, we're trying to find solutions moving forward well this was but i mean it's pretty clear i mean that when amlo ran i mean he made it clear he was going to de-escalate the fight with the cartels 
Is is this the what happens when you do that? I mean, the previous administration at least was trying to fight the cartels. This one does not look like it's doing that. We are working together with uh, President Lopez Obrador and his government to try to do exactly that, to put more pressure on these cartels, to really get at these problems of trafficking and drugs and people, uh, particularly in Mexico, but also, of course, across our border. So that, again, that's why we were down there just this week yeah. doing that. Uh, we've, we realize, and I think you saw when the president went down to Mexico City not long ago, uh, we all recognize these are regional problems. These are regional issues, and we've right. got to take a regional approach to that. Do you, um, with the administration? support the idea of designating the cartels as terrorist organizations? No, we've talked about that, Chuck. We don't believe that that's going to give us any different or more authorities than we already have to uh, to put pressure on the cartels and to continue to work with the Mexican government. I, I, I'm, let me ask you this. If Congress did this, would that damage relations with AMLO? We don't believe it's going to uh, help us, not not just with the relationship, but it's not going to help us deal with the issue of the cartels. That's why we're not uh, we're not supporting that particular idea. I, I guess I go back to, you know, I saw recently you, you said it's a democracy. Are you sure that AMLO yes. is pro-democracy and pro, I mean, he's trying to uh, weaken their electoral um, agency that sort of has brought some transparency and has brought some wow. trust into their process that that country didn't have for 70 years. Certainly there are, you know, uh, obviously issues uh, that they're dealing with down there. We recognize that, but it is a democracy and we want to see democracy thrive in, in Mexico and as well as throughout the whole hemisphere. Uh, and that's why we, these relationships are so important, Chuck, to have, be able to have these conversations with, uh, with friends and partners. Sometimes they're tough conversations, but they need to be had. Um, very quickly, hypersonic missiles and Russia's use of them. Um, yeah. Do you expect them to escalate this or... Does do we view this as a desperation move? They have not. Uh, this is the, not the first time they've used hypersonics. I think you know that, Chuck. Now, obviously, we're looking at maybe a half a dozen here, which is more than they fired in any given day for a long, long time. Uh, it's not exactly clear why they were using hypersonics. Uh, it clearly, I mean, you have to take these, these attacks in total, more than 80 strikes, cruise missiles, drones, and hypersonics. Uh, that was a lot of hardware they threw at the Ukrainian infrastructure over the last 48 hours or so, and it did a lot of damage. Um, that's the escalation here, that Mr. Putin continues to want to punish right. the Ukrainian people because he can't uh, effectively work uh, against the Ukrainian military. The use of hypersonics, um, it's a strange call for trying to knock out fixed right. buildings to use a hypersonic missile. Um, uh, but uh, but we'll see. And, and again, we're what we're focused on is okay. making sure that we're giving Ukraine the air defense capabilities they need to defend themselves. John Kirby, always a lot to discuss, but I'm out of time. Appreciate you standing in the cold uh, uh, for me on this one. And thank you all for being with you us bet. this hour. We'll be back Monday with more Meet the Press now. And if it's Sunday, it is Meet the Press on your local NBC News station. Senators Bob Menendez, Kevin Kramer, among my guests. Please don't miss it. NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson right now. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.